A very warm welcome to all the weavers who just joining us at Kopi Events. Thank you so much. This is your host, Vance, here. As usual, before we go on further, there's always the cup. But nowadays, it's not coffee. I do not know why, because the weather is a bit unpredictable, right? You know, it's so humid and extremely hot. You just have to hydrate yourself. So I've decided to go on water. But that doesn't mean Kopi with Vance is no more, right? They're definitely, but now it's water. All right, so welcome everyone once again. And today's, um, like I said before, on the last couple of weeks, that today's, this whole month of November is dedicated to the month of diabetes we talked about. And today we have uh, a great speaker who's coming on board in a very short while. Uh, they, this is Dr. Ben Ng, an endocrinologist and hardened endocrinology um, from joining us will be just in a bit. But what I would like to... Um, stay to all our viewers so please share and like this video so that more people will be joining us and create this awareness and exposure of this topic that we're going to talk about so let's invite dr ben <coughs> hello dr Hi. ben morning Hi. how are you sir i'm all right thank you I'm for right. having you. so it's good to see you sir i mean um we we just got connected a couple of days ago and um I, it's my great appreciation for you to join at Kopi events on the topic of advances in diabetes treatment. Uh, Dr. Ben, um, as much as I am very excited and privileged to have you in Kopi events today, uh, we celebrate World Diabetes Day just three days back, right? That's on the 14th of November. Uh, but you have taken your time, your precious time, to set aside one hour with Kopi events. But I'm not sure you are holding on to the Kopi. Are you having any coffee there? I, I got tea, unfortunately, but... Tea with veg oh, yeah. is fine as well. <laughs> All right. Cheers, dog. Thank you so much. So you definitely taken a very busy schedule off and, and, and join us. Uh, but doctor, before we even want to go on, um, will you please uh, do a little introduction about yourself so that our viewers will know who is this gentleman is all about? Well, um, hi, my name is uh, Dr. Ben Ng. I'm an endocrinologist. Uh, if those people who don't know what an endocrinologist is, we are doctors who study hormones. Uh, one of the biggest diseases we treat, as Vance has uh, alluded to, is diabetes, because one of the hormones involved in diabetes is insulin. So I'm an endocrinologist. I work in Mount Elizabeth Novena. And I've been there for almost 10 years. Uh, before that, I trained in the UK where I was there for 15 years. And I did my undergraduate studies there. And uh, I did my specialist training as well. I came back about 10 years ago. Thank you, doctor. Thank you for doing that introduction for me. So you saved a little bit of my <laughs> my job here. So you have done it. Uh, doc, in, 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 especially in Singapore itself, uh, there's about 400 over 1,000 of Singaporeans live with diabetes. And even in the recent time, I mean, not only the recent time, um, if you look at all our ministers, I keep on stressing about the word diabetes, diabetes. So it could be the next pandemic. It is the next pandemic, actually, even though it's COVID-19 is what we talk about. But diabetes has been there for a period of time, a longest period of time. But somehow or other, um, especially for Singaporeans, we want to talk about the, the, the population over here. People are, you know, uh, diagnosed with diabetes at the age of 40 and 30. So that's a little bit scary. Uh, but one in three uh, in Singaporeans and the number of those with diabetes is projected to surpass to 1 million in by 2050. That's the stat that we get. Dr. Ben, could you share what kind of cases typically come to see an endocrinologist? And uh, how does care at your regular GP differ from that of an endocrinologist? So if we can just break the two questions first, maybe then we go to the second one. Yeah, no, but the second question is a <laughs> challenging one. Uh. Um, okay. <laughs> the um, as far as what what do endocrinologists do? Like, see, I I spend one of my interests, Vance, is in diabetes, and the type of patients we see they are extremely varied. Um, we have the typical presentation of diabetes, which I think all of us are aware, the people who are overweight, uh, who don't do much exercise, and they develop diabetes maybe in their um, uh, middle age, you know, their 40, late 40s, 50s, and 60s. That's by far the most common. However, as a specialist, what we do is we see the more unusual cases. And unfortunately, which we'll probably touch on later, the unusual cases are becoming more usual and these are the younger ones the ones who are in in their 20s in their 30s who are not overweight who are actually quite active and they develop diabetes as well 
Um, how do we differ from GPs? I think the GPs here, to be fair, are excellent. Um, what I think uh, I can offer generally is we have a little bit more time than many of the GPs. We do, we can run more specialized tests. So for patients with unusual diabetes, they don't seem to be responding to conventional treatment. The, they, they use the normal medication and for some reason it doesn't work. They want something more aggressive. Or, the, or, or essentially even they just want to understand their condition better, those are the ones we try to help our best, we try our best to help with. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. Um, but also, like I said, uh, we, are, we are going to go a little bit more deeper into the next question itself. Um, just curious, uh, what inspired you to become, you to become an endocrinologist? Because I have asked the same question to a couple of other doctors, to the orthopedics, to the psychiatrists and psychologists and physiotherapists and all that. But it's always an interest. It must have something have triggered you or is it something that you always uh, wanted to be? No, to be fair with you, when I started medicine, one of the reasons why I started medicine was because one of my uncles was a doctor and he said that you don't really need to be very sure what you want to do. You know, you want to work with your hands, you can become an orthopedic surgeon, you don't want to see people, you can be a radiologist, you know. So um, you, you, I liked it because I didn't have to change, I didn't have to make up my mind. So I kind of enjoyed that. Um, but what made me become an endocrinologist is that uh, what we really do, Vance, in, as endocrinologists is, is we do yeah. a combination of science and humanities. So we look at data. So anyone who has diabetes or any other hormone problems, it's not just, oh, your sugars is high, we treat this number and so forth. It's the interpretation of numbers. Um, and we look at certain, many of the results, the, the tests that we do, the measurements. We kind of put it there. We come up with some kind of conclusion. And that's one aspect. And the other aspect is the patient themselves. So although you can, can have the same results with two different patients, your approach can be extremely different. So that's what I liked about it, the sheer diversity and the combination of science, which is from the results, and working with the patient. And I think that's very important. Uh, as you know, diabetes and other endocrine problems, they're not something you just cure with a tablet or surgery. They're many times chronic diseases. So you really have to form a relationship with the patient. You need them to trust you. You have to trust them and you need to work closely. So it's a combination of science again and really getting alongside the people you work with. So that, that's the exciting part I find with endocrinology. You know, Doc, I mean, over the, I mean, we, we want to talk about in the 1960s and 1950s, our forefathers. And so probably the medical advance wasn't there at, at a point of time. Probably there is a certain amount. But nowadays, if you look at it, is it because our elevators? Is it because of our escalators? Because everywhere we go, we are sitting down. Is it because of the lifestyle, uh, the diabetes? I mean, this is a probably a, a projected uh, a question, right? If you're 20s and 30s and 40s, if you're not active and you're not watching what you're eating at the same time, if you're not putting any kind of a workout or exercises, is there a high chances of 50s and 60s to have diabetes? Um, absolutely right. I think that, and I'll answer that question in several ways, friends. I think that is by far one of the major projections. I mean, essentially, we got our iPads, we got our, uh, we have, we have our trains and buses and cars at the moment. So the amount of exercise we used to do is very different. Now food is very available. You pick up the phone. Last time, at least you had to walk to the food court. Now you don't even have to do that. You pick up the phone, the, the food comes to you. So um, I think these are significant factors that are resulting in it. But to be fair with you, I don't think it answers the entire question. Because if you start looking at data here, we got just recently, a couple of years ago, they actually uh, presented a case where a five-year-old girl had diabetes. And this is not the type 1 where people say you inject insulin. This is the yeah. one you normally get classically in 55, 60-year-old patients. So you're starting to get that and you kind of think it can't be just a pure, you know, no matter what you eat at the age of 5. And you start to see the younger people uh, in their teenage, uh, teenage years, the young people. And we, uh, you, if you have gone through in a few, a few years ago, there was data saying that Singapore has one of the highest rates of diabetes in young people. Um, and more scarily, the presentation of people who are actually slim. So typically, we know the diabetic patient, oh, you know, very fat, don't work. Though the, the, we have very active people nowadays who come in who are slim, who are fit, who also have diabetes. So I think the, the combination of, I think, the... Uh, 
is one of the major contributors, but genetic predisposition, um, you know, some people have been talking about endocrine disruptors we find in our plastics, uh, the air, um, genetics. I, I don't know, but there, I think there are multiple factors and you can't just answer that question with one single thing. That is the reason. Thank you, doctor. Thank you for that. Um, also, if you look at it, uh, like uh, earlier I mentioned, um, our PM has been stressing this almost every time when we, he, he attends a a seminar, especially uh, in, a, in a public uh, sector or giving speech, you know, diabetes, right? Uh, but I'm not sure whether people are taking this seriously um, or always they have this thinking, oh, it's not me. I, I don't want to bother about it. Or is it because of they always think it will never happen to me? But then when it happens to them, then they start panicking and then start start to do. Because in my in my job scope of my line, in the fitness area, I always see people uh, jumping into an action when something triggers. So there's always a trigger point. Um, probably is the HbA1c test to do on a regular checkup. We will we will definitely talk about that in the later part. But do you think that in and especially uh, as we as humans we we don't take responsibility? Is that could be the reason why, especially in this decade, we can see the cases are rising up quickly as possible, right? Is that could be the reason why? Is that a trigger point? Certainly. I think it comes in several factors, Vance. I think the most important problem is that diabetes has no symptoms. So ultimately, it's just one of those things that until it's very severe, you know, you Google it and say, oh, you know, you got thirst, you got weight loss, I got none of that, I got no pain. So people think it's nothing. And the problem is, you know, usually when you're in your 30s and your 40s and your 20s, you're too busy working, you're trying to advance and all that. So we don't really look after our health. So I think that's one of the factors. And what's most scary is that it then comes the, the, the next step where, oh no, I'm only 20-something. If I have diabetes, then I can never do the same thing again. Therefore, I don't want to know. So there's that ignorant side of thing because I'm feeling fine. I must be okay. Lah. And comes down to the fact that in some way, you know, you're right. Um, if, if and when they get diagnosed, I, I almost hope that they come to you and please help me exercise and help me do something. The problem is some of them say, I don't want to know, uh, you'll get better on its own. I don't want to do anything because I'm feeling fine now. And the harsh reality is this. If you were diagnosed with diabetes today and you didn't care, the reality is that you're probably going to be okay for the next five to ten years. The problem is that after the next five to ten years, all the organ damage has happened and all that. And at that point, I tell many of my patients, there's very little I can do. You, the, the, the damage over with, uh, with diabetes happens slowly over numerous years. And by the time people present and they don't care, a lot of the organs have been damaged. You already have damaged blood vessels and nerves. And the problem is that you can't really reverse those issues. You have to really start fighting fire. So that, that's really the problem that we have. It's a psychological thing. Yes, uh, some of them want to do and they, 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 they get motivated. The challenge, I think, also on top of that is sustainability. And I don't know, I'd be interested to hear your experiences as well, Vance. I mean, the people, they come to you for fitness and all that. Do they sustain that kind of weight, uh, that, that, that kind of lifestyle and activity? Uh, because in my experience, some of them do, but it's a small proportion. I agree, Doc. I mean, uh, I, I mean in the line of um, my, my job scope also, we do see a lot of cases. Uh, when it always happens, uh, the percentages-wise, I will say it's 70, 30. 70 is only when something triggers. There's always a trigger point. Um, when when something crucial happens. And I think that will be a little challenge because then what we need to do is uh, we can't just take in them for training and say, oh, you run on the treadmill, you do this. There's no standard. It has to be tailor-made, like what you just said. You have to make sure they check with the endocrinologist, make sure they do their HbA1c, make sure they're eating right. Um, that's, it's, it's a big process that we need to you know follow in order to make sure that they don't fall under the negative side of the results. Um, thank you for that, Doctor. Definitely, it will be an eye opener for our viewers out there. So, viewers who are watching this, please do share and like. Uh, we have Dr. Ben Ng, the endocrinologist who's just with us and um, he's sharing a lot of his expertise over with us. He's an endocrinology specialist. So, please share and like. Doc, I'm going to go on to the next part, which is the diabetics treatment and management. Um, so, let's go into this part where we say, why is it diabetes is very dangerous? Um, we know there are a lot of other complications, but uh, your advice, Doc. 
Yeah, I mean, diabetes is dangerous for several reasons. I mean, the immediate effects of high sugar generally doesn't cause too much problem. So many people are, oh, my sugar is high now. Generally speaking, unless it's critically high, it doesn't cause too much issues. Um, so unless you leave it for a very long time, the sugars can get very high. If that happens, that is an emergency because simply that the blood's extremely thick. The blood's are extremely thick, it can clot, but this is again quite rare. The main problem with diabetes, and I, I'll say we've alluded to that, is dangerous because you have no symptoms. And when you have symptoms, you have a problem. So essentially it's dangerous, A, because it's silent. They call it the silent killer for a very good reason. It, you, you don't have symptoms, it causes problems over time, and you don't realize it. And when you finally do, and the main issue that is that it affects everything. Um, people are familiar with heart disease, they are familiar with kidney disease and eye, but what they may not be so aware of is there's an increased risk of almost two to three-fold for cancer. There's an increased risk for osteoporosis. There's an increase for liver cirrhosis. So it practically every organ, every system in your body can be affected by diabetes. And that's why it's so dangerous. When you present with complications, it's, it's not impossible to treat, but we are really trying to maintain things. We are trying to prevent damage from happening. The, the problem is when organs are damaged, it's extremely difficult to reverse that kind of damage. So that's why it's dangerous. And the concern with many people is they have diabetes so long, they come and the complications are catastrophic. And ultimately, that is so much later on. And you kind of think maybe we could have done something to prevent it, but we didn't. And, and that's really the shame. You know, doctor, um, you, you made a very uh, a strong point. I think prevention is better than cure because if if you are, uh, I mean, if you have even diagnosed by a, di uh, if you haven't diagnosed have a diabetes or if you have not have a diabetes, um, you can actually manage your food intake. You can exercise, you can manage, you know. But once you are diagnosed with a diabetes, then I think the whole problem starts. Then you can't eat, then your blood glucose rise up then you got a lot of other issues. So definitely, I think prevention is the key. But another challenge that we all face is we are always surrounded by food, uh, surrounded by all the uh, chocolates and sweets and sugars and all cultures that we talk about. We always have it. So it's constantly a pressure, right? And someone who goes on the extreme diet and not eating it for the next 30 days or 40 days, and then on the 41 days, on the you just go bizarre, right? you just go crazy and you just keeps on eating. So... It is a challenge that we are always surrounded by good people and good food. So that could be one of the factors as well. Without a doubt. But I think it's important, and I think we'll talk about more in, about diet here. I think it's very important when it comes to diabetes. And I think one of the take-home messages we really need to um, uh, share here is that you it is not something where you get diagnosed and, oh, you cannot eat this forever. You cannot eat your ice cream. You cannot eat your cake. You cannot have your bubble tea. I think it's important to say that you can, however, not in excess. You see, I think that when you come down to diabetes, you must understand it uh, just very briefly. If you say, doctor, I am eating a very healthy, a very balanced diet, but my sugars are high, then it becomes my job. It's no longer your job. At the end of the day, your body needs all the nutrients. If you're depriving yourself of nutrients just to get good sugar or good cholesterol levels, then I can assure you you're starving yourself and other organs and other systems are, are, are suffering as well. So what you really need to do here is to appreciate going back to one step. If you want to do some diet, ask yourself, what am I trying to achieve? I mean, you mentioned a 40-day diet. I mean, the question is this. Uh, why do you... Uh, and and I, I asked the patient this directly as well. What is your plan? Oh, I want to do this diet. I want to do that diet. Then I said, what is your target? If you're going to lose, you want to lose 10 kilos and so happen you succeed, good luck. Uh, after the 40-day diet, then after that, what are you going to do? Are you going back to your old diet? Then I tell you, don't waste your time because you're going back to your old weight again. It's just a matter of time. You're going to be disappointed, correct? There has to be a guided plan. It's just like, I'm sure when you do your exercise regimes with your clients and all that, you need to say, what is your plan? I want to build the core muscles. I want to increase fitness. And it's not after that, hey, stop, stop training and, and, and go back, isn't it? Because they're going to go back to where they are. There has to be a proper managed plan. I'm going to do this so that this I achieve that. Then after that, I'm going to do that. And once you hit your targets, it's a maintenance or you let things go a little bit. So there has to be a plan, I think. 
Definitely, Doc. I mean, uh, there's a lot of education that we need to um, uh, share with a lot of uh, people because uh, not too long back, someone came and said, you want to lose weight. So I asked why, because um, the big day is coming, the wedding day. Um, in order to achieve that, um, she started to drink a little water. I mean, instead of drinking seven or eight glasses of water, she started only drinking one or two. And the, and, the, and the theory behind that is because it, she will put on weight. So there's a lot of education I think people need to understand because nowadays people can just search anything in the net and then get a lot of information. So it's very, very important that uh, they should know what they do, uh, at least before checking out with the doctor first, understanding and then get into, not just see and listen to people and then get into. Um, so definitely, doc, that was a very good uh, takeaway as well. Um, the next one we are going to talk about is one of the highest, uh, Singapore is one of the highest diabetes related to lower limb amputation rates in the world with an average of four such amputation conducted here daily. Could you please comment on the statistic, Dr. Ben? In one word, it's very sad. Lah. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it is. I mean, at the end of the day, it's almost, um, it's, it's, it's very disappointing simply because that most of the cases in diabetes uh, are really preventable. A lot of these complications, I think, and, and this is why I think the, the we're doing the right thing with PM talking about detecting diabetes early, really trying to intervene. We're screening, we're we're providing money, and we're, we're, we're supporting people to screen. And this is the, exactly the classic reason why. You can't. You sort of think that if, if these people, we pick them up early, and as I mentioned, these things take at least five, five to ten years to develop. If we pick this poor man or lady who was going to be amputated 10 years ago, we say, listen, you don't you may not need medicine, you may you may need medicine, but you do this and this, we can prevent it. And this person will have a, a leg and they will be much happier, their family would not be under so much distress and all that. So um it is disappointing, but and but it's a good thing to know so we can do better. I think this is a wake-up call for us to know that this is a preventable disease, uh, something that can be catastrophic for somebody's life, but taking the right actions, um, doing things like what we're doing today, uh, screening often and all, we can potentially help a lot of people. Thank you, doctor. I mean, uh, it, like it's indeed a sad thing, but uh, it's all have to be managed. And I think a lot of education have to keep on going. And that's why you look at it. It's, it's, it's there right now. I mean, health is the most greatest health one should have uh, not in the bank. I mean, of course, you should have also in the bank, but also in your health is also very, very important as well. So both have to be in a balance, right? Um, of course, stress and anxiety and those kind of stuff also can be, you know, without lack of sleep. Uh, I know someone who's only sleeping like three hours a day and uh, that's that's very bad that, because that's going to, you know, make a chaos in the whole human system. So that's, that's a bit... Uh, uh, dangerous as well. Uh, Doc, uh, is, is also diabetes uh, reversible? Can a person with diabetes be cured using lifestyle interventions like either doing a healthy diet and exercising regularly? Have you seen such cases and experience? But, yeah. you know, after you've been diagnosed, right? I mean, then they want to do all these changes. Yeah, um, the answer simply is yes. We, we I have seen a good number of patients and there's a lot of data to support that you can potentially go into remission. But um, I think if, if I may, I'm going to take a, a couple of minutes on this. I think the first step you need to ask in diabetes, because it's interesting you measure things like you mentioned things like stress and poor sleep, because let's go down to the basic principle of what diabetes is. And I always start by saying that, look, diabetes is not a sugar problem. It's not a sugar problem. If it was a sugar problem, you just don't eat sugar and your problem is solved. It's not because I'm sure you have cardiologists on your show and all that before. It's like you going to a cardiologist and say, doctor, when I run, I get chest pain. The doctor will not say, hey, you don't run, then you don't get chest pain. The issue here is that is what with diabetes is that essentially you eat sugar, your sugar is high. So you don't eat sugar. It's not wrong. I think the sugar can cause health damage, health consequences. And it's certainly important to regulate that. But if you go that one step and you ask yourself, can I reverse this? You just don't eat sugar, your sugar is normal. But I can assure you that if you eat sugar again, you'll go up. So you have to go back to the basics. Why is my sugar high? And that is not so easy to just assess just like that. You need to check the metabolic rate. You need to check, you, you need to check your insulin levels. Ultimately, is to answer why your sugar can't go can't be high because you may you we all probably are aware of this that many people with diabetes for example have high cholesterol 
they have high, they have fat in their liver. Why is that? At the end of the day, it's a syndrome. And this syndrome is a in simple English, uh, a situation like that is why when you have diabetes, you can't use energy efficiently. So you think what is energy? Sugar. If you're taking the sugar, if you take your ice cream, the ice cream is supposed to go into your blood, supposed to go into your cells to become to form energy. Yeah. When you take something, you eat your ice cream, it goes in your blood and it's stuck. Why is it stuck? Because your body can't absorb it. So this is the main problem. You have to go back to the basic and ask, why can my body not absorb the sugar? And once you know the problem, you can fix it. And in many cases, not all, many cases because we are eating too much sugar, so the body cannot handle that. That's possibility one. Or number two is the body is just, we, we've, it's, it's a little too heavy. We've eaten too much. It's a bit too fat. It becomes inefficient. So we need to know situations like what's happening. There are cases as well where your body is running out of insulin. It's getting low. So being able to identify this issue, then addressing that issue, not just let me cut down my sugar, I cure my diabetes. It doesn't quite work as straightforward as that in many cases. Find out the problem, intervene the right way, and some of them is just improving your lifestyle, improving your sleep patterns, because ultimately stress, as you correctly pointed out, we are, we are a holistic person. When you are stressed, you're not sleeping, the body's under attack. When that happens, sugars go up. It's a normal response. So could that be the reason? Could that be? Could it be because we are overweight? Could it be we're eating too much sugar? Could it be our insulin is low? So the main thing is that when you're, you have diabetes, when your sugars are high, it's ultimately an end product of multiple possibilities from metabolic problems, overweight, low insulin levels, and so forth. So once you identify the problem, then you can potentially try to solve it. So in certain cases, adopting a healthy lifestyle, the right kind of lifestyle and all that can help. But the problem is knowing which one, that's number one, and knowing what are the correct tests to measure your progress. That's important. You know, Doctor, I, I totally, uh, I, I heard this many a times where, you know, some say, oh, I got diabetes, I need to cut sugar. But that can lead to another problem because then they go into a diabetic coma because they're not eating anything and then they faint. Oh, I'm not going to starve. So there's a lot of uh, information out there, uh, but it's not accurate. So I think it's very important anyone who has have certain symptoms like, you know, going often to the loo, uh, you, you you feel very lethargic and you you feel that, you know, you're, you're, you feel giddy, you know, most of the time. So these are indications that your body is actually constantly giving. You know, when you have a pain, means there's some kind of signal the body is giving, especially if around your sternum area or if you feel your jaws are tight. There must be some kind of the signal the body is telling you, hey, I'm giving you a warning sign. So if they, if the person who is owning that and is not taking responsibility, then it's an issue or incident to happen. So I think pointed out very well, doctor. Thank you so much for that. Um, in the cornerstones of a diabetes management, uh, adapting a healthy diet and a regular physical exercise. Dr. Ben, can you please share with the viewers what are some of the dietary and exercise tips that you would love to share? Yeah, um, so let's go back again uh, to what we said about. Let's The, the first step, obviously, obviously, is to find out what is wrong. Find out what is wrong, find out what the issues are. So sometimes, in certain cases, and you're probably better at this than I am, is to find out some of our patients are what we call sarcopenic. So they have very low muscle mass. And remember, yes. it's the muscles that use energy. And so in many people who have low muscle mass, one of the biggest therapies here is to improve muscle mass. So what we do is we measure where the muscle mass is. We try to increase that. And we do the correct forms of exercise based on their metabolic function. The next one is eating. Now, we, it's very important to point out again, is for all my diabetic patients, I say, listen, you can eat what you want within reason. So there's no, there's no such thing as a diabetic diet per se. Because I always tell people, people will say, hey, this kind of food, lah, uh, this white rice, not good. This whole grain, very good. But I always tell them this. When you do your finger prick and you see a high reading, whether you're white rice, whether you eat whole grain, whether you eat an ice cream, it's all converted to glucose. At the end of the day, the end product is exactly the same. That doesn't mean you eat what you want, but it's the same. So the only difference with the kinds of food that you eat is, number one, how much sugar you consume at one time, and number two, how fast the sugar goes in. 
That's the only difference when you're eating carbohydrates. Don't talk with different story. You talk about protein and fat, but we're talking about sugars per se. So when you talk about sugar, it's sometimes the amount you eat at one time. People say, oh, you know, brown rice, very good. I have two bowls of brown rice. Versus if I take one bowl of white rice, I tell you, no, please take the one bowl of bright rice versus the brown rice. It's sometimes the way you eat, not just what you eat. And I'm sure you, you I, I'm very hesitant in talking to a fitness person, but I'm sure you agree. It's sometimes how you exercise, not what you exercise. The regularity of exercise, where you focus on and so forth matters. So the general tip I give them is always be aware you can eat what you like. However, how you eat it and how much you eat at one time is extremely important. And don't believe in what people say, oh, you can have two handful of fruits. I tell you now, if all of us, all the listeners, you and me ate one apple, all our sugars will go at different levels. So you can't say that this amount is good. Okay. Everybody must eat this amount only. I think the, it's all individualized. You need to see your response to that kind of food. And exercise is always analyze what you need to do. Find out your body composition, find out your muscle mass and where you need to focus on. And the way you exercise, regular exercise rather than uh, those uh, weekend heroes where you do the marathon in the weekend and don't do anything else. I think regular exercise involving core muscles and all that, very, very important uh, to actually manage metabolism. Uh, doctor, you have actually answered this question as well because in the first question when I asked you the previous one, you have already answered that as well. So definitely, uh, resistant training definitely increases muscle mass. If you have said it very clearly, the sarcopenic is the muscle loss or muscle is too low. BMR is not there. But I think it's also very uh, crucial for viewers out there. Uh, anybody who wants to start ex start exercising, I think the very important thing that you need to do, always check with the doctor for clearance first, right? please check with endocrinologists or your favorite doctors to get a health screening done. And I think that is very important as well to make sure that you are safe before jumping in an exercise. And especially for people with diabetes, doctor, I mean, they like, you know, oh, I want to start training, you know, everything is in very N2. But I we can understand their N2 because they want to make a major change in their life, especially to the health. But in terms of cardio resistance, because we know certain exercises require certain type of energy and certain medications if they are type 2 or type 1 diabetes their medications have to be adjusted according to their body weight and the workload they have been doing what will your advice doctor be well um what i normally do i i, I take things from the extreme to to one side when, when you want to exercise you're absolutely right the first question is are you fit I know it sounds weird that we are promoting exercise here, but I can tell you now, <laughs> there's, there's actually a statistic figure of how people actually suffer because of exercise. That doesn't mean you don't do it. But if you have not access, if you have to dust off your running shoes and you've not done it for 25 years uh, and you're a particular vintage, you may want to check your heart before you start running. Um, they have unfortunately people who play badminton and they get heart attack during that time. And I think that's important because you need to know whether you're fit to exercise. I think that's the first step. If you have diabetes, especially, unfortunately, we've had a few cases like that where they were, they had diabetes for a long time. And again, they dust off their shoes and they have nerve disease in their feet. So when they started running, they walked off with a hole in their leg after that. And, you know, it took months to heal because of the poor blood supply and nerve damage. So be very, very clear that you are fit to exercise. That, that's the first thing. The other one as well is that for diabetes especially, what happens is that um, as you exercise, uh, the different, there are different kinds of exercises here. When you do aerobic exercises, when you run for long periods of time, the blood sugars tend to go down. So if you're on treatment that can lower blood sugars excessively and then you run, then you may get what we call a hypoglycemic attack where your sugars yeah. go too low. So be very careful about that. Talk to your doctor first or at least take precautions. Uh, have something sweet along the way. Uh, make sure you prevent that from happening. If you're doing aerobic exercises, certainly for a short period of time, blood sugars can climb. So you have to be aware of that because don't panic. Oh, why my sugar go out? I thought exercise is good for me, you know? So these are all the things that you do need to manage. And again, speak to your doctor if you're on treatment or even if you're not on treatment, be aware of the changes so you don't get disappointed because um, many of my patients say, oh, exercise, why is nothing happening? My sugar gone high rather than low or why is it so low, you know? I don't want to exercise anymore. So be aware of that and have a chat to your doctor again. Get, get assessed properly and we'll see how it goes from there. 
Thank you, Doctor. So I think this is also quite related. Uh, we have another viewer here by the name of Sarah. Thank you, Sarah, for the question. Um, Dr. Ben, can resistant training increase blood sugar levels in people with diabetes? Is that possible? Yeah, just answer that, Sarah. But yes, um, yeah. if you do aero aerobic exercises uh, and, and if you do enough of it, a lot of people say, why never go down? Because you just not work hard enough yeah. for the aerobic. It, it tends to go down. But if you start to lift weights and all that, it's not uh, surprising for your blood sugars to climb first. Um, and, and, and that's a normal response. But don't worry. That does not mean I've got diabetes. I don't lift weights because my sugar is climbing. It's a normal response. Because what happens when you lift weights is the muscles say, listen, I need to move. I need energy. So th there's a normal response. Please do that because that just shows you that the muscles are working. And that ultimately, you, as you build muscles, uh, and as Vance will tell you as well, the more muscles you have, the more um, muscles you have to absorb the sugar. So that's a very good thing. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you for that. And we also have another viewer here saying that thank you very much for sharing. Very informative. Thank you for the view, uh, comments, viewers. Please, uh, if you do have any questions for Dr. Ben, please uh, ask us and we will try to um, answer them. All right. Um, doctor, we are now going into the, um, the, the another question, which I think is also very important. We always hear about these uh, blood glucose monitors. You know, how do we measure that? Uh, in terms of your sugar level. So the question is really is how do you monitor your patient's blood sugar sugar results? Do you recommend any continuous blood glucose monitoring at your clinic? Or can continuous blood glucose monitoring positively impact a patient's blood sugar levels? Um, excellent question. How much time do you have? <laughs> I have we, 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 we have another 15 more minutes for another uh, another five more very important questions that we have. Yeah, um, on medications we try to go there. I think the most common blood test, as you alluded to, Vance, is HbA1c. Uh, we do use that, and uh, for the, the viewers who don't know, there's uh, average three-month sugar reading, and that's a very commonly used um, measurement. Then I think the other question is actually more interesting. The Many people come to me, and they have their book, and you see they've really been very good at it. They're very proud, you know, that this book and they've taken their blood test like eight times a day and they say Dr. Tanis, you know, their hands are all red because of all this. And the 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 question I ask them is why did you do it? I'm not being harsh on them, but any action that you do, whether you do any diet, any exercise, again go back to the first question. Why did you do it? Because at the end of the day, for example, if you're on uh, example, let's just say, Vance, you are on your diabetes and you had metformin, and then you have been very bad today. You've eaten six ice creams and a cake, and your oh. sugar is 18 at the moment. Reality is this you call me Dr. Van, it's high. What do I do? I can't do anything. Neither can you. It's high. You know, so the the point about I'm trying to make here is that there's no point doing a test and not knowing why it's high. So if you're on treatment, oh, doctor is high. Okay, well, I also can't do anything. I'm not going to give you insulin tonight. So the first thing is that if you're going to monitor your sugars, either A, your monitoring response to therapy. Oh, I've been started on a new medicine. Does it work? That's useful. The second one is that I, go, I want to see my sugar. And if I eat this ice kacang, what's going to happen? That's useful. So check your sugars before and check your sugars after. If it's very high, then that thing is not good for you and you're responding badly because that is too high for you. Maybe the next time you should eat less. So that's an educational aspect. So that's useful. Then the other side is, oh, I want to make sure that my diabetes is stable. So that one you don't have to check very often because you just want to make sure that your sugars are hanging around five and six and you don't want to see doctor six months later and it's 12. So you can do that every once, every few, few days a week. Then there's another one, more complicated. If you're on insulin treatment, you want to know the correct doses and all that. that. That's different. But to answer your question, just checking your sugars for doing a finger prick or we have the Freestyle Libre, which is a sensor just at the un, under the skin here. we got continuous glucose monitors. There are many, many ways to check your sugars now. But whatever you do, always go back, why am I doing it? If you have a reason or you don't have a reason and you want them to have a reason, talk to your doctor about it. But don't just simply check because it, it doesn't guide you at all. Thank you, doctor. I mean, um, this topic, like I said, it's it's, it's very in-depth. I mean, it took you many, many years 
to master this, but all that in a one hour, it's going to be a little challenge, but we were trying to get as much of information so that we can share to our viewers because um, I think it's, it's, it's a month of diabetes and I think it's, it's, it's important that we share this as well. I mean, um, we, we hear this medication all the time, metformin. Uh, it's still the first line of treatment for type 2 diabetes. And um, and some say, say, no, I don't want to think about it. And some even, I ha I mean, I have certain experiences. Uh, the doctor diagnosed as, as one tap. They are taking off on their own. They become a part-time doctor. So there's a lot of, uh, the, the communication is not there, right? They'd say, oh, I want to try and see on my own. But I, when I ask them, have you spoken to your doctor? He said, no, but I'm just trying on my own. But then it, it doesn't sink, you see. So where are we right now in terms of, whether the part-time doctor, which is them themselves, or the real doctor who is actually telling, you know, you should be doing this and that, they're not listening. So the communication is not there as well. Mm. Um, well, the, the thing about metformin is this. It's extremely controversial as far as you talk about, when you talk about metformin as first line. In The simplest way to answer is yes, it is a first line therapy, but there's a but there. Um, several issues to, to consider. First of all, the diabetes, as I mentioned, is, is very heterogeneous uh, presentation. In other words, you know, you have a combination of problems. It's not everyone presents the same way. Although everyone's sugar is high, the presentation is different. You have the thin people with diabetes, the overweight people with diabetes, the sarcopenic patients with diabetes, such a huge presentation. Um, but metformin will work on most of these cases. That's number one. However, that being said, be very clear that in many cases, metformin, and you look through the data, after a few years, it tends to fail. So although it's very useful in the beginning, be very careful about what you're trying to do and the doses you're trying to take. Metformin is, has side effects as well. So many people have bloatedness, they have gastrointestinal side effects. And the problem is you don't look after it, you don't maintain things. Uh, we know that within three, four years, patients' sugars often climb. So what you may want to do is that sometimes it's used in combination. Or if you have side effects from metformin, don't just say, I'm going to not take anything and so forth. You need to get different kinds of therapy if that is necessary. Okay, doctor. Um, just a personal question for myself so that the viewers will also understand that. Um, so what is your recommendation for people who are above 30 or 40? How, how the health screening should be? Is it yearly once just to check? Okay, now I can say, oh, I know I'm fine. But um, I will never know what is my glucose reading unless I, 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 whether when I donate a blood, then they tell me, oh, your blood glucose is such, or what is your hemoglobin and kind of stuff. But, but uh, what should be the guideline? I mean, the current guidelines are quite clear. If you have no risk factors, in other words, you got no blood pressure, you got no cholesterol, you're not overweight, you're not sedentary. This is quite a long list. Huh? You got no gestational diabetes. Uh, you're quite fit and well, and so forth. You should be screened for diabetes, cholesterol, and high blood pressure uh, once every year at least. Uh, sorry, uh, once one every one to two years after the age of forty. The guidelines are not so clear when it comes down to if you're at risk. In other words, if you have diabetes uh, or you're a family member with diabetes, you're overweight and sedentary, they can say you can be tested at any time. So that's useful. Uh, but for someone who should I be tested or not, the simple answer is I think you should be tested. I mean, if you start looking at the percentages, I mean, if you can guess between 20 and 30, this is 10-year-old data. We don't have anything too, too much newer in Singapore yet. The percentage of people with diabetes at 20 to 30 is about 1 to 1.5%. So 1 in 100, that's not a small number. You know, so um, I think as far as screening is concerned, um, I think after the age of 40, definitely get screened. If you're worried and you're below 40, there's no harm. Nobody's stopping you from getting screened at this point of time. And given in Singapore with all the risk factors and COVID-19 and all that, I think it's definitely something you may want to consider. And also, I think, doctor, it's also a fear, you know, um, if no news is always a good news, but eventually it is not the truth because um, I, I know a couple of people, I know a few are training, you know, they always say, you know, I'm keeping myself fit, which is fantastic. The mindset is great, but without going for a, a checkup, you know, whether you go for a, a scan or whether you go for your blood test or whether you go for your cardio uh, stress test, I think these are all very important. Like you said it in point that yearly 
or at least you know I should know what is my HbA1c at least I know what the past three months how I abuse my body so that I know what I can do for the next three months or these current three months so that my readings will be good so I think it's it's very very important as well for viewers to please yeah, go I'll and do your there and, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll just say one thing this one they didn't teach yeah. us in medical school and unfortunately okay. I only learned that after I, I, I progressed in age whatever you do lifestyle health diet cannot beat age age will always win so ultimately you think you're very healthy you think you're very well whatever happens sooner or later that cholesterol is going to creep up that blood pressure is going to keep up that sugar is going to creep up no matter what you do in many of us yeah it's a great indication docs i mean like like you know it, it is uh, like what we agreed earlier the projected is there right if you abuse your body uh, if you dump everything inside like a trash bin in the 20s and 30s. I mean, 20s, you are doing it fine. 30s, okay. Lah. Then 40s, uh, um, uh, um, you know. But then 50s also, you're not taking care. Then the body will start to say, okay, 20s, you didn't take care of me. 30s, 40s, now I'll start showing you. And that's where the numbers all come in. And it's something like a, a, a relationship, right? Everything comes in together. As, as we're saying this, Doc, I, will, I would love to share this um, uh, article that was just uh, showed in Straight Times today. If you look over here, um, <coughs> it was actually by Straight Times on 17th of November. Yeah, today. Um, I like to read this. Underlying conditions like hypertension and diabetes could increase the risk of stroke in younger people. And that is very scary, Doc. I mean, um, you know, at the, the the youngest age which I know who has a cardiac arrest is about 32, 33. Uh, in the past, we hear only that, you know, someone who has a cardiac arrest at the age of 50 and 60s and 70s. But now the numbers are coming lower. The diabetes being diagnosed is also coming lower. Um, these are scary stats, definitely. What is your take on this, Doc? I mean, you're right. It, it's scary statistics. Um, they are all, I think this really goes back to the issue of health screening and there is what I and, and I tell a lot of people this. There is what we call individualized health evaluation, and there's community health evaluation. Because at the end, this is a classic case of some unfortunate someone who developed a potentially catastrophic problem at a very young age, and you know, diabetes, cholesterol, all no symptoms. And the reality is this. Um, there's someone else who has probably higher blood pressure, higher blood sugars, uh, higher cholesterol, smoking, no exercise, obese, but he's going to live to a ripe old age of 110 versus someone who's exercising all the time and he's going to get a heart attack and stroke at the age of 30. And the difference here is that it's not just the risk factors that you have. The risk factors are significant, but also the individual need to evaluate yourself. Don't just say that, oh, I got no problem, my sugar normal, my cholesterol, normal, everything fine, I'm going to be okay. Uh, you might not be. And this is where individual treatment is. If you have blockage, if you have um, problems already, and you have your cholesterol is normal, all I tell you is that that level is too high for you. You know, it's, 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 everyone has individual targets. Don't just say, oh, my HbA1c less than 6.5. I will not have diabetes problems, no diabetes complications. I can assure you in my years of doing that, that's completely wrong. You still need to be screened. Um, the risk is lower. The chances are lower, but at the end of the day, it's still possible. And uh, this chap here is just a classic case of uh, undiagnosed disease and developing a cat catastrophic problem because of no intervention. And uh, and dog and if even if you look at that and uh, say that diabetes and hypertension and cholesterol, so it's like a, a family that is just joining, right? Um, if you're not taking care of your heart, eventually it will lead to something which is elevated heart rate because of cardiac. The myocardium is not strong, uh, so you have already invited one problem. And then if you are abusing the system like a bin, uh, throwing in chocolates and sweets and high carbohydrates and without any limited or uh, you know, unlimited uh, options, then you are actually increasing up the glucose level and eventually your pancreas will say, you know what, it's time for me to say warning sign, you know, and and and, and then followed by cholesterol and, and so and so forth. It's, it's really scary, like what you said, 30s and 40s and 50s, it can happen to anyone, whether slim or a little bigger size, whether fit or unfit. 
Um, Doc, we only have 10 more minutes and I think I, I will just take two more questions for that. I know viewers are sending in a lot of um, messages as well. But, you know, we also hear about these newer treatment options for type 2 diabetes, the glycogen, like the peptide, the GLP-1 receptor agonist and sodium glucose core transporter and hint betas. What is your um, take on this, Doc? I mean, these are two very exciting treatments. At the moment, they are very exciting treatments because these ones have really convincingly showed us that they can help patients reduce their sugar, get the weight down, uh, protect the heart, protect the kidneys. I mean, it sounds very wonderful, isn't it? These kind of drugs. And both yeah. of them potentially can do that. Uh, but it comes back again to... Um, the individualization of treatment. And I think that's very important. What, what you should not do, and listeners, please, this is very important. Don't say, my neighbor got diabetes. They're taking the SGLT2. Very good. You go to your GP or special. I want this as well. There's sometimes a, re sometimes a reason or why that may not be suitable for you. Just because it, the CV looks very good, uh, it is very effective and all that, all of these medications have potential side effects. Um, the glucagon, like the GLP ones, very effective treatments. They are, it's a natural hormone that's produced by the small intestine, uh, very effective in, um, in reducing weight and sugars, but also quite significant side effects. Uh, nausea is common, so be cautious about that. Um, it may not be particularly useful in certain groups of patients. The SGLT2s, very effective as well, uh, very useful, but also the problem is they can promote genital infections. And if you have insulin deficiency, it can be quite catastrophic because it can cause ketoacidosis. So again, uh, be cautious. Don't just say, there's new, I saw it in a newspaper. I want to take it, uh, give it to me now. It may not be suitable for you. Do talk to your doctor about that. And if you are suitable, yeah, it may do you a lot of good. Thank you, doctor. Um, we're just going to take one more question. I know we've been... Uh, maybe you want to have some tea? Well, I drink my water. I've been taking a little bit here and there, but yeah. Okay. So, never mind. It's okay. We will join for with Vance again, right? Uh, Doc, another another question. Um, FDA has approved a freezer in 2014 and he nailed, he nailed insulin medication. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? When you will um, come to Singapore ever? Yeah, actually it was, I, I used it a little, I have actually had one patient on it several years back. This was again showing my vintage, but I, I, I did mention I was trained in the UK. So um, it was used. Unfortunately, it's, um, I know it sounds very sexy, isn't it? Oh, I don't have to inject insulin. I inhale it. It's going to be great. Um, it did have a few limitations. Um, first of all, it came in very strange measurements. So it's not, you know, if you see an insulin pen, you can give one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, up to 80. Um, this one, it comes in threes and sevens. So if you want to give four units, you cannot. So it's a bit funny that way. The second one of all is that the, I think the device has changed, but it was this huge inhaler, which you couldn't even put in your lady's handbag at that time. I think it has changed now, but certainly the one I used, nobody wanted to use it. Um, the third one is that it only used short-acting insulin. So um, if you, as, as, uh, for those people who know, insulin is divided into two types. One, if you want your sugars to go down now, so you're eating a meal. So there's short-acting insulin and there's long-acting insulin, which lasts the whole day. Um, our freezer only came in short-acting. So not particularly useful because you still needed to inject. And the final thing is that um, I'm sure we all realize insulin is what we call a growth factor. So um, if you inject people with high insulin levels, insulin resistance, they tend to be quite fat because insulin promotes fat. Uh, formation um, uh, and growth formation. If you are inhaling that into your lung, there's that theoretical risk, although they tell us it's very safe and all that, you are inhaling growth factor in your lung. I mean, that in itself sounds extremely scary. So uh, I used it in one or two people. They didn't like it. And uh, ultimately, I decided I didn't like it either. So even if it comes to Singapore, uh, I'm not saying it's Things may have changed from the last time, but I would still use a lot of caution before we start using it on a regular basis. Thank you, doctor. I mean, um, it's definitely, I mean, I, we, we, I do have a couple of more questions, but I don't think so. I want to take that because we are running for time right now. Uh, but, you know, I, I would love to just ask you a, a question, you know, um, which I think I get the most of the time. And, um, and I think it, it is fair that I ask this to you, that ex expert, right? 
you know, once somebody is diagnosed with diabetes, um, could it be reversible? Can I change it immediately and, yes. and be go into pre-diabetes? Yes, or even be going to remission. Um, there's a there are some ex, there's some excellent work done for anyone who wants there. Um, the, the the guy is called Roy Taylor. He's from Newcastle, one of my heroes in diabetes, and he's actually leading the he's leading the pack here. Um, he's put these people on low calorie diets, and ultimately what he's done he's done a lot of work on how this happens. So his remission rate is about thirty to forty percent in clinical studies. We have done that on some of our patients. Uh, keeping in mind again, it doesn't work on everyone, Vance. Please. Talk to your doctor before you embark on any of this. Certain groups of patients who have insulin secretion still, um, they are put on certain therapies, weight loss treatment and so forth, and they go into remission. And I think you had Dr. Jaideep Rao uh, in before. Yep. Uh, surgery, yes. metabolic surgery can also reverse it. So it's not a one-way system. Um, I would encourage anyone, A, if you say surgery is not for me, I want lifestyle treatment, but I'm determined. Don't say, I don't. I want to be off medicine. I want to reverse, but I don't want to do anything. I, I, unfortunately, it's never going to happen. No. But if you're very determined and you're really willing to put in the effort, it's possible. And I don't want to do anything, but I still want to reverse it. That's Dr. Rao and there's surgery for you. Uh, so there are many options in which you can consider to treat and yes, there is potentially possible to go into remission or pre-diabetes. Thank you so much, doctor. I mean, um, if, it, it definitely it can last for another three more, four more hours, but no, we don't have it. Uh, but you know, I, I truly value and appreciate the time that you have separated for, for copy advance and keep it for us. Uh, any last words or tips for the viewers before we call it a copy events end of session? No, well, uh, thanks for having me, having me, Vance. I mean, I think it's important. Simple thing is that we, we've talked about a lot of things. And I, I actually, I enjoy this simply because of the time that we have. Most of the time when yeah. I do interviews, you have 5 to 15 minutes and you have to push everything in. So it, it, it was great. But um, just a few uh, ending things. A, I think diabetes is, diabetes is a heterogeneous presentation. In other words, when you have high sugars, it's not everybody got the same problem is due to a combination of many things that failed that's led to the high sugar. So what when you see the high sugar, it's a problem of many, many things. It is a cascade of events and it's diverse presentation. So it's not one glove fits all. Um, there are different kinds of treatment. There are a lot of new treatments, but they may or may not be suitable for you. There are many different ways to exercise. Vans would know better than me. There are many different kinds of diet, but certain ones are more suitable than others for different situations thank you thank you thank you thank you doctor thank you so much for the past one hour uh in fact it's one hour and two minutes uh for joining me in kopi events i i truly enjoy it as well uh we definitely going to meet up for kopi or coffee you know and then we shall continue the second part of the a great conversation um have a lovely evening thank you so much again for joining me at kopi events doctor uh and it, it was a really a fruitful session today. Thank you. See you, Sydney. Okay, so that was Dr. Ben, an endocrinologist who just joined us for the past one hour, three minutes. Um, amazing, right? Uh, every copy with sessions. Sorry, copy with no copy with Ben sessions. Let's see, I say it wrongly. Uh, I I learn something, you know. I always learn something, and and it's really great to have a speaker who's an expert in the field and an endocrinologist coming and spending about one hour with us. And I think the viewers are enjoying it. So if you are watching it, uh, please, 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 uh, share and like it so that more people can get this awareness and exposure as well. As you know that. Uh, diabetes is the biggest pandemic that we ever have in the past many, many decades. And you know that over 400,000 yeah, of Singaporeans are living with diabetes. And if we don't do, you know, in my all my speech, if you ever seen, even yesterday I did um, an interview session was telecast yesterday, if you can see it in my wall as well. Uh, we talked about diabetes, we talked about diets, what is really a diet about. Uh, before you start anything, anything, whether you're starting an exercise program, whether you are going to, you know, go into a, a, a food, a diet, I think it's very important that you need to consult someone. 
Um, do not try and listen to someone on A or B and C, and then you try to do it. Your body is not an experiment. I have a word, you know. Uh, you are always welcome to contact me at Kopi Vance or Vance Coach. Uh, I would love to have a, a great 10 minutes chat or, you know, to have with you just to make sure that you are on the right path. I think it's very important uh, before you drive the car in the expressway, you want to make sure that your car is in ready and tip-top condition with all maintained under the great maintenance. If not, you will break down. So I think it's crucial. I like to stress the word. It's very crucial that you need to make sure that you take care of your body um, so that your body will take care for the rest of many, many, many good years to come. If not, it will start to give you a lot of problems. We hear a lot of, uh, in fact, the article that was brought our attention today, it's scary, right? Hypertension and diabetes could increase the risk of stroke in younger people. Um, there are cases where strokes happen lower 40s and 30s and myocardial infarctions and um, heart attack also happens in a lower, you know, not love seeker. We're not talking about love sick or heartbreaks. Um, so it's very important that we need to be very careful of our health. Any sign or symptoms that is not um, regular, if you think that is coming in suddenly, a pain, then you need to address it. Uh, if you're feeling very lethargic, uh, going to the loo very often, we hear that, right? It's a kind of a indications that your body is giving you a warning sign before it starts giving you a major breakdown. So be careful of that. Um, stay safe, stay healthy, um, do all the necessary things that you need to do. You know what to do, right? I'll catch you again on our last segment of the month of diabetes. We have covered successfully three weeks on the topic of diabetes. You get just one more week and then we will be done. We're going to a different topic. But the next uh, week, um, we have a professor that's coming on board and um, he's going to talk another segment of diabetes and surgeries and kind of stuff. It's going to be an interesting topic. Um, so stay tuned. As usual, Wednesday, 9 p.m., uh, glue to your seats, make yourself comfortable, and join me in Kopi Vance. For now, I'm signing off. This is Vance, Kopi with Vance. <laughs>